Welcome to the Evolve Pod, brought to you by Evolve Wellbeing Group. Hello everybody and welcome to the Evolve Pod. I'm super excited uh, this week. I've got a really inspiring guest. He's been inspiring to me as an individual for probably the last seven years from having met him for the first time about seven years ago. And, and, and being an athlete, being a runner in particular, this guy has really brought a lot of positivity into, into what I do and also my lifestyle. He's the founder of Running Reborn. He's the author of a new book called The Lost Art of Running, which I could recommend to anybody whether you're into running or not. He's worked with literally thousands of runners across six continents, including big, big names such as Solomon White, Damien Hall, Nicky Spinks, Tom Evans, and he's also known as the Indiana Jones of running. So I'm really pleased to introduce you all to Shane Benzie. Shane, how are you, mate? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. Like I said, I'm really excited to have you on the pod. Uh, to give yeah, a bit of background to this conversation, Shane and I met, um, I think it was at Eton Dorney, wasn't it? back in yeah, about yeah. 2013, 2014. Wow, was it really that long yeah, ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talking wow. about triathlon and what, what we were doing back when I was, you know, full-time coaching. I've done a bit of work alongside Shane on some coaching clinics. Uh, you've also coached me with my own personal goals and my running, which I've seen huge benefits from. And when I started this podcast and the release of The Lost Art of Running, it was just like, it was a no-brainer of me to just hassle you until, until you'd come onto the podcast. <laughs> so I'm sorry about that, but I'm glad I've finally um, no snagged you to come on. So there's a sort of introduction from me. I mean, a lot of what you've done over the last sort of 10 years, coming from a sort of running background, what, what talk to the listener, what was your experience of running before you got into this research, before you got into the, the kind of the nitty gritty of what you do today? Because I know you did a couple of distance events. Yeah, yeah. So I was, uh, I suppose, what you'd call an ultra runner. So long, long distance stuff and up to kind of, I think 184 miles is the, the, the longest I've run continuously uh, and, and do multi-day events and, uh, and stuff like that. So it was really the long stuff that I was into. Um, and I think I probably... I loved it, absolutely, and still do. Um, but I had two big challenges. There were there were two big problems, I guess, that I had as a as an ultra runner, and they were that I just seemed to be constantly getting injured. I always seemed to be coming back from one injury to kind of stumble into the next, and I could never really get my training done because I was always carrying some kind of injury, um, and I just wasn't getting any better. You know, I just, I just, just couldn't, my performance just wasn't getting any better. And, the, and those two, those two things were kind of, uh, I guess, eroding the the fun away from from the running. Um, and uh, so I kind of set off on a journey, really, for myself uh, initially to just to find a better way to run um, because I was pretty fit and I kind of thought I knew a lot about kit and hydration and nutrition and all of that sort of stuff. I had 26 different pairs of trainers and all of that, but it, but it still just wasn't working for me. So I thought, right, I'm going to, I'm going to try and find a better way to run. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's why I'm constantly getting injured and I just don't get any better. So that's where my journey started was really for, for me to try and find a better way for me to run. Yeah, amazing. I think there's a lot of people that will resonate with that, you know, the the constant, particularly when we when we talk about ultra running or marathon running and, and upwards, you, you know, people do pick up a lot of injuries and niggles and there's various yeah. different mindsets towards how you can deal with that, you know, 
there's a lot of ultra runners that will tend to push on through and not necessarily give time to recover but if i suppose i don't know like maybe your mindset if you if you can get to the bottom of why you keep getting injured and make the change then the, the long-term benefit from that is huge isn't it oh with, with, without a doubt and i mean what i what i've started to realize when i really got into my to my research was that actually uh, i mean when you run uh, as when a human runs, it's got about two and a half times their body weight coming back at you. Yeah, so Newton's third law, any action is met by an equal and opposite. So when we're running along, that's two and a half times our body weight comes back at us. Now, that's quite a lot of impact to come back at you. Uh, and, and I think because of that, as runners, we've become scared of impact. So we actually move in a slightly curious way, trying to avoid it which ironically means we don't dissipate it correctly and it, and it kind of come, does come back to beat us up. What I've started to realise by travelling around the world and looking at tribes, indigenous people and athletes around the world was that actually if we move well, not only do we dissipate that impact correctly so that it doesn't hurt us, it actually turns into elastic energy and throws us forward. It's amazing. And I mean, so it's a, a real double whammy. And if you move well, because your fascia is rejuvenating, your muscles are re-architecting, your bones are remodeling. We actually remodel ourselves to be able to do that task better if, if we move well. So I suddenly it all got kind of really exciting. Um, and I think if I could just put it in, you know, that, that, that initial finding in, into a nutshell, I think we're two generations of runners that have seen good running as being able to move over the ground and save or not use energy, whereas I see beautiful movement as moving over the ground and creating energy. Mm. Our interaction with the ground creates huge amounts of elastic energy, which is essentially free because it doesn't want any oxygen, any calories, doesn't produce lactate. It's almost too good to be true. I'm yeah. still chasing it 10 years later. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a huge emphasis on natural movement, isn't there? And if we reflect back to, you know, you certainly, in your own words, being continually injured, typically when, you, mm. when, you, when you're nursing injuries or even post-injuries, you know, there's a process called guarding, isn't there, where you'll, you'll subconsciously start to guard the, the area that's issued, which will affect how you run, and that takes away from natural movement. And I think one of the things I've really taken from you over the last you know, few years of working with you is trying to reconnect with that natural way that we're all designed to move. And, yeah. and I feel that's a really yeah. inspiring kind of goal is to actually go you know what, my body is designed to move in a way that I'm not necessarily doing at the moment and I'm making it harder for myself. So let's just take it back to basics, back to the back to the reality and the beauty of natural movement. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when you, you know, when you get injured, you know, I, what I, I think one of the other things I've learned really is that movement is a software thing. It's, it's a brain thing. Yeah. You know, you're, I don't think there's really any such thing as muscle memory. They kind of do what your very clever software tells them to do. Now, if you get an injury, Quite rightly so, your software jumps in and kind of keeps you off of that injury so that you don't continuously hurt yourself. But long after that injury or that contraindication has gone, the software can still be kind of working to, 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 to compensate for that. Um, and the brain doesn't wake up at six o'clock on a Tuesday morning and think, oh, I wonder if everything's OK now. Let's just see if we can go move through that old movement. It, it doesn't do that. And that's where coaching and analysis really works because you get to see yourself move. And you get to see that if you are compensating or moving with an asymmetry, you can adjust that. And then the brain gets to see, your software gets to see that actually it's fine to make that movement and then will allow you to do it. So, um, you know, it's, it is, it, that's why it's great to see yourself move. And one of the really the things I get really, really excited about is just getting people to video themselves. Yeah. 
We'll watch, my... watch yourself move. It's amazing. Oh, unbelievable. Uh, unbelievable. And it's so eye-opening. I mean, I've, as many listeners will know, I've done a lot of video analysis with swimmers and, you know, mm. and on myself. And when you see yourself move, you 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 tend to be doing something you're really not expecting, particularly for the first time. <laughs> so it is it's that eye-opener. But I'd, li- I'd like to come, we'll, we'll come to the analysis side of things and the services that you offer, et cetera, towards the end, end of the pod. I want to come back to, to your journey. And when you, um, so you kind of decided you had this light bulb moment of, okay, I want to stop being injured and I want to find mm. a way to improve and get better and become more efficient, et cetera. And it, and, and it took you to all these the crazy impressive and lovely amazing places and harsh places as well one of which was yeah. um in africa um, working with working with some of some of the runners over there there's there's lots lots of great information in your book about that but one thing that really jumps out at me is something i find really interesting and, I, and i've had um how can i say it? i've had direct experience with this not in africa it was actually on a track in abingdon but <laughs> the, the power <laughs> but the power of the group yeah yeah. what the power of the group can mean to your movement and what can it can mean to your running and obviously my you know my research of this on one evening in Abingdon is probably not quite on the same level as your research on the on the power of the group here so talk, can you tell us a little bit more about what you, what your thoughts are on the power of the group when with a particular reference to movement and running mm, yeah yeah I, I think it's huge um and I think, you know, I, I do spend a lot of time in Ethiopia and Kenya and Uganda and various places around Africa um, studying uh, movement and, and, and athletes in Africa. And, you know, there's lots of things that make the East Africans amazing, uh, you know, growing up in bare feet, altitude, genetics, running out of poverty, diet, all of these things, you know, contribute to, to making them great athletes. But probably the biggest thing of all that I've seen is, yeah, what I what I refer to as the power of the group in the in the book um and yeah i think we're you know we're a lot we're a lot stronger if we're in a group i think we you know that if, if i if we use the africans as an example you know they push each other pretty hard you know when they're racing and when they're training but they're also there to put their arm around each other when things aren't going so well you know they really inspire each other and push each other but then then they're really there to kind of help each other as well um and and i think certainly in the western world um we don't really do that so much we tend to train more on our own we tend to be kind of you know more loners we we do i guess the power of the group for us is more social media um for good or for bad um and that can be a good thing you know that can inspire people and help people but i don't think you can be getting together in a group of course back in the day when we were hunter gatherers that's exactly what we would have done we would have moved around together in a group probably no more than about 150 of us uh, and we would have really really depended on each other Um, and so we are kind of hardwired to want to be in a group and I think it's not odd that we that's why we like to get together and race and stuff like that because we all join together and we run Uh, I think it's kind of in our DNA and one of the fascinating things that I that I, that I saw early on uh, with the athletes out in the training camps was, you know, I think you know East Africans do move beautifully, and uh, um, that's what kind of took me out there to try and understand why. And what's fascinating is when you when you're in the training camps, there are people that have been in the training camp for some time, and they've lived together for quite some time, trained, eat, slept, drunk together, you know, they spend all their time together, and when they're out on the track, 
they just move in this beautiful synchronized way. Yeah, we've all we've all kind of seen them, and I'm probably guilty of posting stuff on social media of it because it's, it's a uh, kind of human. Picture, it's a uh, picture. I remember that from the first session that I did with you when you were doing the analysis not on me and you brought up this picture I think there's sort of maybe three or four or five of them in a row and it's just the perfect yeah. image of 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 the group yeah yeah almost human art yeah um, and there's, there's actually eight of them because they always run in eights um, and so you watch them, you know, watch the men and the ladies, they'll run around in eights and they just move in this beautiful synchronized way. But when new people come to the camp and they're running at the back of the group, they kind of don't move like that at all. Um, and, and, you know, it isn't coached. They're not coached by coaches to move in this beautiful, elegant, rhythmic way. What they actually do is they drop in to the group. So if there's two at the back that are new, they might drop into uh, fourth place and sixth place. And now they're surrounded by beautiful movement. They're surrounded by this beautiful rhythm. And by osmosis, by flow, by the power of the group, they rewrite their software into this beautiful movement by being surrounded by beautiful movement. It's it's a, it's an amazing thing. You know, and some of these eights, you know, they've been running around these tracks for 40 years. But the personnel just change. You know, it's a conveyor belt of beautiful movement, world record holders that come and go. But they're always around long enough to pass that on to the next runners that run around with them before they move on. So it's almost like it's almost like passing down the line a, a language or, you know, or, or, or information through song or something like that. And, uh, you know, a lot of those things are in danger of going and it would be a massive shame if we lost this, this beautiful movement so we could learn a lot from that in the in the western world um, and i think again that's why video is amazing and that's why you know everyone should video and watch themselves run because it's a really good way of starting to understand how you move not everybody can have eight world-class africans to run around <laughs> with, so kind of, that's not so easy um, say it's, it's, run... <laughs> it certainly wasn't eight world-class athletes in Abingdon. <laughs> but you but you can get people together and take a fascination in your move and you know the one thing i would say to every everybody and i would certainly say it when i'm coaching it doesn't matter whether you are a world record holder or whether you're trying to do your you know trying to do 30 minutes for a park run it doesn't matter you should get fascinated and excited about your movement because it's just as important to you as it would be to an elite athlete so you know and that we need to start sort of looking at running as a movement skill rather than just this blood and gut sport where we stick a pair of trainers on and just try really hard start to treat it more of a skill and a practice well one of the really interesting things that i've taken from working with you and your book and and your sort of your resource base that i've got access to is that the way the, the knowledge and information that we all need to move like you say it applies to absolutely everybody whether you are a world-class athlete or whether you're on your first ever journey towards your first 5k park run and everybody in between with some with with various other sports some of which I've worked in and some of which I haven't quite often what the elite level person does isn't really applicable to what the beginner or the starter does but certainly with running and the way that you know you integrate your research into how you promote running it's 100% applicable no matter who you are and I really think that's that's amazing it's but it but it's also so simplistic that it's great yeah, yeah. I mean, like you said earlier on, you know, we are, and it's not breaking news, you know, we are designed to run. It's kind of one of the ways in which, in which we used to earn our living was, was running and walking. 
without a doubt. So we've got all of the stuff to do it. And every single person has, you know, and some people say, oh, well, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not really built to run. I'm not a runner. Well, we kind of all are. And, you know, if we'd have gone back to being in that tribe and we were persistence hunters, there would have been a few people at the front who were pretty quick with with the pointy stick chasing the animal. I know and other people would have carried stuff and would have cooked and, you know, but everyone would have had to have moved with the group. So we all have the ability. There might be somebody faster at the the other end of your street or on the track or we all know someone quicker than us. But that doesn't mean to say that we can't get out and and, uh, and maximize our potential. You know, that it, it's a, such an exciting thing to do, even if that just starts with walking, because walking is an, a, you know, a great way of exercising um, and is a really good precursor to then learning how to run. Definitely. And I think, um, you know, currently there's a lot more people getting out to run, given the fact that, you know, we're in a global pandemic and we're limited to the to what exercise we can do. And I know quite a few people that have actually, you know, their, their, their sport of choice has been taken away. So they've started to reconnect with running and they're actually finding some really good benefit from it. Now, obviously, through the pandemic and particularly January this month, this year, I think has been pretty hard for a lot of people not necessarily physically but but mentally you know the strain of being locked down potentially homeschooling trying to hold down jobs um you know yeah. all these sorts of pressures that that are that are happening at, at the moment there's a, a sentence in your book it's the only quote i'm going to take today from your book but it's on page 71 and in your own words you say i was beginning to realize that tension in our minds was a runner's true nemesis i'm I believe this. I know this through personal experience that I use running as my therapy. You know, I've had been through some things in my time and running for me is my way of it's almost my meditation now of getting outside. And yes, I've still got my competitive edge. I've still got some big goals I want to hit. But ultimately, <laughs> if yeah. I can still I would rather still be running at 80 years old than and then go on, go under a sub 245 marathon, for example. You know, I'd rather yeah. still have the ability to run when I'm 80 than say when I'm 80, be sat in a chair with, I'm being not able to run saying I did a 245 marathon, you know, yeah. and it's that because it brings so much to me. So I'd like to find out a little bit more about about that sentence where, you know, the tension in our minds is a runner's true nemesis. What does that mean for you? Well, I think when I first came across that that thought process, I was actually looking at uh, although this 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 thought process changed completely as I as I carried on with my journey, but in, initially when I came across that thought process, that was more it was on performance. So when so when runners are running, uh, it's very important because I want because I'm really keen for runners to uh, think about running as a skill and a practice. It's kind of really important that you stay in the moment with that with that movement. You know, so if you went to a, let's say a yoga class or a martial arts class or a ballet class, you'd be, you know, thinking about the movements as you did them and wanting to do them kind of ever more beautifully. Um, and so I was really, really keen for um, you know, runners to do that. And what I saw with elite athletes um, was that they had this amazing ability that when they were running, they were able to relax the mind and just focus on what it was they were actually doing. Um, so just using the kind of the front of the brain to concentrate on their movement allowing the back of the brain to kind of relax which is kind of meditation that's sort of what meditation is really is just giving the front of the brain a relatively simple task to do allowing the back of the brain the gas guzzling bit the analyzing bit just to give the bit a chance to relax down um, now that made a huge amount of sense from a performance point of view because the brain is a gas guzzling thing 
you know, even while we're chatting here, we're quite relaxed. So we're not that nervous about chatting with each other because we've done it many times. Uh, and But even now, our brains want 25% of all the energy that our body is using just to tick over. If you start to then get it really analyzing things and having to think about things, that, that goes up a lot. So that's not great for performance because the brain is stealing what actually we'd like the um, to use to propel us forward. So from a performance point of view, it was a, it's a real game changer. And then I soon started to realize, well, that's great. But actually, from a, from a, a well-being point of view, which is, of course, where we want running to go, it's absolutely huge. And we talk about this headspace, don't we? A lot of people talk about headspace and getting out. Oh, that's my time. That hour I run or that half an hour I run or whatever it is, that, that's my time for me where I can relax and get some headspace. Um, and that's what I'm so I think it's developed into that as much as a performance thing where people can go out and run and they can relax into it. Just use the front part of the brain to just think about their movement, the sequence of movements that they make. Take a fascination in those, which will enhance your skill of running. But it allows then the, the back of the brain, the one that's thinking about homeschooling, work, what am I going to make for tea? You know, what's happening here and what's happening there? It allows that part to relax, you know, and that is, you know, that's, that, that's huge therapy for the physical body and, and, uh, and for, the, for the mental side of it. And I, it's absolutely huge. So I think it's not only performance enhancing, it's amazingly good for that well-being thought process as well. Definitely. And, Listeners would have heard me talk about this before. Um, the two things where I get absolute pure freedom is trail running, you know, on typically a new, relatively technical terrain and snowboarding. Yeah. You know, I, right. you know, I'm not that great at snowboarding, but, you know, it's, it's, it's when you're in an environment that you absolutely love. You're doing yeah. something that you're so engaged with and you're so focused on that you're actually not focused on it at all. Yeah. You know, and you're, ju you're, you're doing without thinking. And that for me is absolute freedom. You know, I've yep. got I've got three kids now. I've got two businesses. You know, busy life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and the, the 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 time when I'm out and I'm running, and you know, I do a lot of running on my own. And that's just mm. the time when I am at, when I am free because there's no pressure. And that for yeah. me is like it's so important. And I and I try as best I can to to try not to think about too much stuff when I run. I just think yeah. about the art of running and, and what I'm doing. And that those times when you get into flow, it's yeah. awesome. It's absolutely awesome. Yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, and every well, not this January because I can't sadly, but but this will be the first year in four years that I haven't spent most of uh, January in India. So as part of my research, I go to India. Uh, and I work with yogis and meditators to kind of understand more about this kind of stuff all the time, feeding it into dynamic movement. But at the same time, understanding yeah how we can relax the mind, because if we relax the mind, the body actually, you know, does work better. Um, and I'm always talking about this elastic body that we have, I'm, you know, I'm sort of always talking about that. But we have a, 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 an incredibly elastic mind as well. You know, neuroplasticity, we're learning more and more about that all the time. That's where a lot of my work now is going so we can create this very elastic mind that can do amazing things but we can also slow it down and relax it i don't think you can stop thinking i don't think that's possible i'm not even sure if that's healthy but what we should <laughs> do is just think about something that just 
eases us down and calms us down and, and, and we find uh, fascinating and engaging and then just allow the, the big part of the brain that's whirring all day to relax um, and I know certainly from my work with the, with the African runners you know because I'm a, a researcher as much as I am a coach and a lot of my research is on perception of movement and what happens when you're, when you're running and when I talk to them you know they are amazingly good at just you know just focusing on what they're doing uh, yeah and one of the things um that's fascinating when i when i study the africans running uh i'm thinking about their their mental attitude and their focus and their relaxed minds is actually their acceptance of pain so they actually almost see pain as a positive thing because that means they're in the right place that you know the training's going well they're working hard and, and you know and that, and that does hurt um but but it's it's a positive it's a positive pain um and so you know again we could probably learn quite a lot from that i think in the western world as soon as it starts to hurt we see it as a negative thing um and then this gas guzzling part of the brain starts analyzing and telling us to sit down whereas actually if you know they see it as a positive thing that they're in the right place so yeah the power of the mind is it's everything it's, it's so i think we all kind of know it but it's probably 90 percent, and the physical body's maybe 10 we just don't know what we don't know about the mind. And, trying. and for me as a researcher, the next two or three years of my work is based heavily on that. And it, yeah. it's then its effects on your on your hardware, if you like. I think there's definitely a, a space for pain in training. You just have to identify what sort of pain as an athlete you're, yeah. you're going to expose yourself to. Because there's for me, there's two different types of pain. There's injury pain and there's training pain. You know, and one of those mm. two is a force for good, and one of those two is a force for potentially very bad. And if you yeah. can identify the difference between the two, that will make you a stronger person. And, and I have a I have a phrase that I use with my athletes, which is get comfortable being uncomfortable. And mm. I've got one yeah. athlete, I'm not going to mention him, but he knows who he is. I've got one athlete who, when the going gets tough, he just comes into himself. He's just like he just has this <laughs> ability to bury himself, and it come, and it always pays off you know it always pays yeah, off for it yeah. but I, I also you know I'm going to quote another thing from your book because it's because it's quite apt but Beth Pascal uh, running yeah. in Chamonix there's a there's a phrase that she said as she's starting to chase the pack down um, where she says you know I was the only one that knew I was struggling mm. so she gave mm. off and you've mentioned the word perception she gave off this perception and yeah. this look by running well that she wasn't yeah. struggling she's not in pain and all the competitors <laughs> were like wow geez she's an absolute machine how come she's not struggling but in her mind yeah. she's probably like oh my god this is this is absolute <laughs> hell but don't let them find out and I found that really interesting because you know I've been in races before where I've been struggling and it's so hard to even last mm. night I was running with a mate we did some you know some speed reps and you know you start to really suffer and the hardest thing is to try and control your form and how you how you kind of look as a runner but she managed yeah. it in that to, to kind of suffer but also give off this perception that everything was absolutely fine and I, I loved that that was really interesting yeah it's, and, and yeah and Beth is a, a you know a great athlete and a, amazingly good at pacing herself you know very good and and actually she's a good example because you know we talk a lot about human movement you know and uh, so when I work with athletes I take a very anthropological view of an athlete so if I was working if I was working with you and I think we're together in a couple of weeks actually um I don't really see you so much as an athlete I see you more of a, uh, as a part of the human species and, it, and, it, and as a human species, we're trying to get you moving as much like 
your human species as you were designed to do because if you join in with the attributes that mother nature gave you that will make you a good athlete but actually the really interesting thing is is that actually that's only part of the game because if you know if you're going to do something crazy like run up and down snowden six times which is like pretty pretty crazy you know that's more that that's far far more than our hunter-gatherer ancestors would ever have done or taken on. You know, our, our hunter-gatherer ancestors may have run a half marathon at maybe a four-hour marathon pace. That's about it. So actually, people that are out there running marathons or are swimming and cycling and then running a marathon or a half marathon are actually doing a lot more than a human was designed to do. So there is this part in performance where you stop moving, you stop just moving like a human, that attribute ends, and then you have to start creating human performance. So Kipchoge didn't break, Kipchoge didn't run a sub two because he ran like a hunter gatherer. He ran a sub two because he utilized all the gifts that mother nature gave him as a human. And then he maximized the potential of his software, his brain and his hardware, the body. So most of us really are taking things beyond what a human was designed to do and then turning it into human performance. Um, and the mind is without a doubt a big, big part of that. So it's a really interesting way of looking at it. And uh, and it makes it fascinating because you could just say, well, do you know what? I'm going to go and get a pair of barefoot running trainers, whatever they are, and run around like a hunter-gatherer and then my work is done. But, but it clearly isn't because you you once you once you are moving like a human was designed to move you could argue your work is just starting then because then you need to iron out all of the idiosyncrasies that the human comes with if you're going to get the human to perform more than it was actually ever designed to do so it's fascinating the game never ends it's fascinating yeah well that's a really good way of putting it i like that i like that a lot we've talked about the environment and and the, and the power of the group and I guess part of that, you know, comes to connection with your environment. And again, there's there's various examples of it through the book. And there's a few, you know, with runners in the Peruvian jungle and the Marathon de Sabre. And you mentioned how those the people that win those or, or kind of rank quite highly in those types of events, they don't perceive the jungle or the Marathon de Sabre or the Arctic or wherever they may be. They don't perceive that place as, as the enemy. They perceive that place as the environment and almost become that environment to perform. Mm, mm. And, you know, almost to a degree, you mentioned it just now when I went to Snowden, part of my mental approach to that event was I was going to become part of that mountain. You know, I wasn't going to be like, oh, I've got to run up and down that mountain six times. It's like, I'm going to be on the mountain. I'm going to work with the mountain to get, get yeah, me yeah. my challenge. And I really yeah. love that, that, that theory, that, that, that kind of mindset towards what, what, what people challenge themselves to and the classic one that I hear a lot is music you know people run into music personally I always advise any of my athletes and friends to run without music because it allows you to become part of that environment a little bit more and you can you can hear yourself you can hear your breathing you can hear your footsteps you know you can hear the rain on your jacket etc etc and I think that's really empowering and I'd like to get your take on on you know on those sorts of things as well yeah so so um 
I think it was quite an interesting moment pretty early on in my research. I, w- I did go out, I went out to the Amazon, I probably did about three or four stints in the Amazon jungle, looking at people competing out there and looking at in- indigenous people as well. And the very, very first time I went out, which was pretty early on in my research work, um, I, the day be- there was a, I was, cover- I was covering um, some athletes in a five day race through the jungle. And I had lots of sensors on them and, and stuff and was looking at blood samples and saliva samples and everything. I was like, perceived rates of exert, everything. I had so much kit. It was unbelievable. And uh, and the day before the race started, there was a little research hut in the in the jungle. Uh, and I, as a researcher, got to use this research hut for the day before the race to get all of my stuff ready. And there was an American guy there as well who was a researcher. And he was he was actually researching hummingbirds. And he was researching our hummingbirds' beaks. It was the morphology of hummingbird beaks that he was studying. Okay, there is relevance to this. I know it's okay, a bit, okay, bit, yeah. it's a bit yeah. weird. <laughs> and what he was trying to understand is, are hummingbird beaks uh, morphing to the shape of flowers or are flowers morphing to the shape of hummingbird beaks? Because there's this kind of arms race thing going on and you know, one needs to adapt to the other. But which is adapting to which? And I had a whole day with him and while I was doing my work, and it was fascinating. And, and it kind of changed my thought process even before I started doing the research in the jungle, because what it made me wonder was, are the athletes going to bend to the jungle or is the jungle going to bend to the athletes? Uh, well, I pretty, pretty quickly worked out that actually <laughs> the athletes were going to have, well, you know, those athletes that were going to just take on the jungle and get it to bend to their will pretty quickly realized that that wasn't going to happen at all and actually the athletes that uh joined in with the jungle you know loved it and you know took a fascination in it you know um did so much better so so much better than actually a lot of the people who would probably have outperformed them if they were just in a in a more baseline environment because they really bought into it and and what I see time and time again on multi-day races, and I've done multi-day races all around the world in deserts, in Mongolia, Arctic, jungles, all, all over the mountains. What I see constantly is athletes who will say, do you know what? It's really strange. I, I, I got fit on the race. I built my fitness on the race. And so normally these long day, these five day races, normally in the middle of the race, generally, you'll have like a double marathon day. Yep. So that's, you know, in an extreme environment, two marathons back to back is really, really tough. And everybody kind of dreads that day. So often people will, so the first day they run is normally a short one and they're absolutely wiped out. You know, they, 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 they're getting blisters and they're tired. They've eaten all their food, but they're still hungry. And then by the third day, which is the really long day, at the end of that day, they're saying, this is crazy. I've actually, it was great. I built I built my fitness on the race. Well, it's very difficult to build physical fitness in three days. You're not going to do that. What they've actually done is the mind has, has built fitness. The mind is starting to adapt to the environment it's in. It's joining in with the environment. It's not fighting the environment. Therefore, it isn't burning calories at a rate of knots and stealing from you. So the runner's aren't actually getting fitter on the race physically their mind is adapting to the fact that they're waking up and being eaten by the mosquitoes and they've got lizards in their bed or whatever <laughs> they've got to do 25 river crossings that day you know your first river crossing is horrendous you know your 52nd 
river crossing it's, it's a river crossing yes there might be caimans floating around and but it doesn't matter because the last 51 were okay so it's, it, our mind is really what we're building fitness with and adapting to when we do these things and i'm pretty confident that you would have gone to snowden and done some reckies before you ran up and down it six times yeah yeah, yeah. so you're getting your physical body used to running up and down hills, but your mind, the day you rocked up to do the event, the mind is thinking, oh, here we are again. I remember that stone. Yeah, oh, this bit's a bit tough. And so the mind was ready. The mind was ready. Do you know what? I remember going to Snowden. I, I went. I was going to go quite a few times because of lockdown. I only managed to go twice before before the, okay. before the, the event. I've been there many, many, many times before anyway. But I remember coming off the mountain on the last recce and – you know, I've got no scientific proof of this at all. But I had, I, I remember saying to one of the guys, like, I, I, I'm ready. I've, I've connected with the mountain. I'm yeah. good to go. You know, I've, yes, I've got a few more weeks of training. Yes, I've got to keep myself, you know, ticking over. But I think mentally, I was something had clicked and I was definitely prepared and ready to, to face the challenge that I'd set myself. And I, I, I truly believe that humans have this innate ability to connect with the surround their surrounding you know connect particularly with nature right yeah. but one of the things that i see regularly i've seen i'm sure you see probably even more more than i do is runners who try and find the equipment or try and find like the silver bullet to prepare yeah. for, for races you know rather yeah. than actually tapping into this innate ability that we all have to, to connect with our movement and connect with our environment to to benefit our well-being and therefore our performance so I'm, yeah, I'm completely definitely. on board with that mindset. And, you know, I, I proved it to myself in Snowden. Yeah. I mean, I was that runner who would just try and buy their way out of trouble. Without That's what got me into trouble. And that's what <laughs> sent me off on this journey. Yeah, and I, I remember yeah. I, I just had this, re I always had a bad left knee, always had a bad left knee. It would always go. And uh, and I just obviously blamed it on impact. And I remember 10 years ago, more, more than that now, I spent £25 on a pair of socks, which was a lot of money 10 years ago, that had silver lining in them, these socks. It was supposed to make me more bouncy. And I bought them. And, uh, and it was when I was buying those, I started to think, I think there's something not right here. You know, you know, clear, my knee didn't get any better, even with my silver lined socks on. And uh, then I had to kind of make some some changes. But yes, you know, embracing the environment, even if it's minus 40, plus 50, whether it's the jungle is eating you or the desert is, is causing you blisters or whatever. Again, it's that embracing. You're there. You put yourself there, you know, or whether it's getting off a bike and having to run another marathon. You know, you, you, you put yourself there, you know, em embrace that experience. It's, it's huge. Our brain is our rev limiter, really. Um, now it's there to, to look after and keep us safe to make sure that we don't do silly things um, but if it gets used to us doing slightly silly things then it kind of gives us a bit of leeway and lets us lets us go um, definitely so the brain yeah, is for me the brain is the thing that the, the, your body can go so much further than the brain will typically allow yeah. and so yeah, if you can start cool. to break down that barrier then the opportunities are, are almost limitless you know I think it's a, absolutely it's a you know one of the one of the big yeah one of the one of the big uh challenges we have when we're changing our movement is that we have as humans this thing called a perception of effort and so 
our perception of effort is kind of there to make sure that we don't waste calories. Yeah, that we, you know, we we save our energy because our hunter-gatherer brain, which we've really got a, a Stone Age brain in, in a space-age world. You know, we still have this, we're still hardwired to be lazy and save energy because tomorrow it thinks we may have to run after our food. So any movement changes that we make our body really doesn't want us to do that, doesn't want us to be more dynamic or change the efficient way that we're moving because we've got efficient at it. And the way it does that is to throw it up your perception of effort, which makes you feel tired and and and, uh, and makes you just want to sit down. Um, and so, you know, the brain is there to uh, look after us and keep us safe, and it's good because it does do that. But from a performance point of view, we're always looking just to slightly challenge that and look at ways of just extending what it will let our physical body do. Um, yeah. And that's where that's where the gains are. You know, that, that's where the gains are. It's going to be, it's really hard to build a stronger body to, you know, to, to create maybe two or 3% more of performance. Whereas if we allow our mind to let us go just that little bit more, that, that's where the bigger gains are, I think. Definitely. Cool. I'd like to move the conversation on a little bit. We spent a fair bit of time, which I'm obviously very happy to do, talking about the sort of the men, the, the the psychological side and the, the mindset towards running and and the mindset towards creating that natural movement and engaging with your environment and surroundings. And I'm sure we could probably both talk about it for quite a bit longer. <laughs> yeah. But I'd also like to talk about, and this is something that I've referenced a lot in triathlon coaching, particularly with swimming. Um, which is trying to get athletes to understand not just you know you know listen and understand but actually be able to apply the difference between you know creating tension in the body yet staying relaxed because you mm. know if you like, typical one if you flex your bicep as hard as you can you can't really move much other than that you can show off your muscle but you're not actually creating any dynamic movement and so you, you use this, this this word tensegrity, which I'll allow you to explain because you'll do a far better job than I. But if you could talk a little bit about tensegrity, what it means to us, not just for running, but as, you know, as a species that moves, how that can apply yeah. to our beautiful movement and then how we can create this tension yet stay sort of, you know, relaxed at the same time. Yeah. OK, good one. Um, so, yeah. So when I when I first started going, my very first trip to Africa was to Ethiopia. And when I got there, I saw this amazing movement that kind of was synergistic, connected and fluid and elastic. Elastic was the big word that really came out to me when I saw people running around and moving. And I kind of thought, well, why don't we move like that? Because we've kind of got all of the same bits, you know, but we just don't seem to move in this elastic way that they do. So that first trip, I was there for about a month. Um, and then I came back uh, and, uh, you know, set about trying to understand why they would move in an elastic way and why we wouldn't. OK. And I very quickly came across the fascia, the elastic system in the body. OK. Which is 10 years ago, people hadn't really heard of too much at all. Uh, now we hear about fascia more and more and more. And my work's getting easier because people have actually kind of heard about it. And um and then while I was studying fascia and trying to understand what fascia was and how to utilize it, I came across this concept called tensegrity. OK. And the concept of tensegrity essentially explains for a human, in fact, for a human, it would be biotensegrity. 
And it essentially explains the, the, the synergistic kind of relationship between our bones, our muscle, and our fascial system. Okay. Now, when we, in the Western world, and biomechanics certainly um, backs this theory up, we in the Western world tend to look at the skeleton and just see the skeleton. We always see the skeleton in an upright position, don't we? It's always kind of stood there. It's always grinning. Yeah. And it just <laughs> looks like it's its own structure. Yeah. Well, it looks like it could just walk off of the screen or walk out of the glass case. And it, it's just a structure. And because we always see the skeleton in that way, I think we could be forgiven for thinking that the skeleton is the structure of the body and everything kind of hangs off of it. But that's not true, I don't think. To me, the skeleton is 206 bones that are essentially floating in a sea of tension. No bone touches another bone in your body at all. If it did, it would hurt. Yep. And if you went up to a skeleton hanging in a science lab and looked at that skeleton and jingled it about, you would see that every bone is connected to the next bone by little bits of wire. Well, we aren't connected. Our bones aren't connected to each other by bits of wire. We have fascia, we have ligaments, and then we have tendons connecting uh, muscle to bone. And we have myofascia coating and running through everything. So actually, if I was to visualize somebody running, I wouldn't imagine this skeleton acting as a series of levers. I imagine 206 bones floating in this sea of elasticity as you move. Now, if you put height into your body, then you load this elastic system. Yeah, you suddenly you put elastic tension into your sea of tension. And if there's elastic tension in your body, it means you start to create elastic recoil. So that's a good thing. I think what we should avoid is muscle tension, but we see our strength as muscle. Yeah, we think of we, we think of muscle strength. Probably six million years ago, we kind of gave muscle away. Yeah. So as we were evolving as a species, six million years ago, we would have been quadrupeds, you know, on all fours, pretty muscly, and we wouldn't really have moved around very much at all, lived on something maybe the size of a few football pitches. Yeah. But then we started to develop a very clever foot and the ability to stand tall on two legs. We stood tall, so we got elastic. And we had a very clever foot that made us very efficient, which means we could cover longer distances, catch more brains, get bigger. Sorry, catch more food, <laughs> get bigger brains, get a space program. So our USP is actually a very clever foot and the ability to stand tall and create elastic recoil. And yet now when we try and do anything dynamically, we assume we're doing it with muscles which we gave away six million years ago. So elastic tension is good, and you get elastic tension by putting your body into elegant, beautiful positions, which you would do with swimming or with running or with golf or tennis, ballet, martial arts. You put your body into these beautiful, accentuated positions to create elastic recoil. But, but we should allow the muscles to relax because muscles don't do anything for nothing. They're gas guzzling things and they produce lactate, whereas elastic energy, pretty much for free. Okay. I know we've spoken about this before. I can I can remember back to the conversation in the pavilion in Goring when I last came to see you, I think in February last year. And yeah, just before it was just before yeah. we, everything changed, wasn't it? Yeah. I remember. And we spoke a lot because I was 
sort of I was back in the gym doing some work with the personal trainer to get you know to you know to do my strength and conditioning and you had you had some you had some thoughts on strength and conditioning can you give us your what you what what your what your ideas and thoughts are on on the necessity the necessity of strength and conditioning or if we're going to do it what sort of things should we be doing because I know for me I'm not doing it to get bigger muscles I'm doing it to get more flexible and to get you know to to allow my muscles to sustain the the yeah. effort that I'm going to use that's my, my kind of mindset towards it but I, I did find that conversation we had very useful and I'm sure some of the listeners would equally find it useful to get your take on what strength and conditioning should be could be or what it could look like yeah yeah it is it is an interesting one I do get myself in trouble sometimes when I talk about it. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a safe space <laughs> you're leading me down that path um so yeah, strength and conditioning is a fascinating one, and I think it's I think it potentially can take us off on a bit of a, a strange curve because you know let's say you go out running and you and you you uh, you get a sore knee let's say and you think right okay I need to build up the muscles around my knee you know to you know I need to get stronger quads let's say to to, to make sure that my knee doesn't hurt let, let, you know um, and so we might go to the gym. And then we might start working on those quads and then we go back out running again. So we've got stronger muscles. OK, but whatever you did in the gym, that doesn't take into account deceleration. It doesn't take into account impact and it doesn't take into account range of motion. If we're not careful, what we're doing with our strength and conditioning is just getting stronger a thing we're doing to get strong. And again, we're working on muscles, because if you sat down with a load of people and just discussed what is strength and conditioning with them, they would mention the word strength five times, never the word conditioning. And they would mention the word muscle many times as well. So I think we're getting ourselves into this arms race where something hurts. So we go out and make it stronger, but not change the way that we move. And then it hurts again. So we make it even stronger. And actually, you know, and we, it just becomes this arms race of building ourselves up to be strong in our mind, but not, not changing the way we move. And so we just continue. We get injured. I look at it the other way. So I don't, for me, strength and conditioning, I look at it as conditioning for strength. Okay. So when we were together at Goring, if I have you, if you run 400 meters around that park, if you do that beautifully, I think you're conditioning your software, your brain, and your hardware, your body, to make that sporting movement. And that builds absolute specific strength. I think yeah. the word there, the key word is specific, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And I look at it I, in my mind, and I think in the book I call it Darwinian fitness. So we're all running around trying to create cardiovascular fitness, which, of course, we need. But to me, Darwinian fitness is fitness for the body to be able to perform the task, whether that's swimming, whether that's throwing a javelin, whether it's running or hitting a tennis ball or kicking a football. So, yeah. So for me, the best way to get strong at doing something is to do it, but do it well, do it beautifully. Um, and, and what's really, I guess, created that thought process is... I spent a lot of time living with tribes and indigenous people studying what they do. You know, I've gone off and lived with Sherpas. I spent time in the Amazon jungle. I've lived in the rainforests in Malaysia with tribes. I've looked at people in the Sahara, the Arctic, in Mongolia, all, all around India and Africa, looking at how people who don't actually run, but just do amazing things with their bodies. You know, they don't get up at six o'clock in the morning to do that, to go to the gym, to learn or to, 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 to get practice to do that. 
Um, they get very good at climbing trees, carrying huge weights, whatever it might be, by doing the task. So I, so I believe that we should condition our body to move beautifully to create specific strength. But if there was a strength and conditioner here, and then it's not fair that there isn't, because if there was, they may well say, ah, yeah, but... You know, we don't live the life of the, someone in the Batek tribe in the Malaysian rainforests. You know, we're sat at the desk for nine hours a day. Um, so we have to strengthen our bodies because the Batek tribe are climbing up and down trees and chasing food and they're getting very strong doing that. We don't do that. And that's true. We don't. But I still don't think that sitting at a desk for nine hours a day and then going to the gym for an, an hour after that is going to put right the sitting at the desk for nine hours a day. I'd be keen to get somebody standing at their desk for maybe seven of those nine hours, six of those nine hours. You know, if you were stood on tripod feet, lengthened spine, neutral pelvis with your core engaged, eye line on the computer, breathing into the bottom third of your lungs, you're training for nine hours because your dynamic movement is just an extension of that. So I think we do need stronger bodies because the Western world doesn't really offer us that, but I think we need to take ownership of that where we can within our daily environment, rather than just going to the, to the gym and, and getting strong. Listen, there are some amazing strength and conditioners out there. I'm not saying strength and conditioning is bad. What I try and get across to people is if you're going to go and do some, really ask yourself, is this going to take into account deceleration, impact range of motion? There are great strength and conditioners out there who will ensure it does. But you have to be careful because there are also people that will just get you getting strong muscles. Well, I think it's very easy for people to, to, to talk about strength and conditioning and just do what someone else does, because that's what they've done. And that's found and they found yeah. success from it. But I think it's, you know, I've worked with various you know, personal trainers and conditioning coaches over the years. And the good ones have always been the ones that have actually given justification to the movement rather than that's just good for running, yeah. you know, and, and the justification behind it, you know, personal to potential issues that I've, physical issues that I've been having. And, and I think that's where strength and conditioning is really beneficial. You know, as with coaching is when the person giving it to you really understands a, why you need it and b you know the actual things that you should be doing not just the generic things because you're a runner oh this is what all the runners need go away and do that yeah yeah absolutely yeah absolutely and i think that you know like with everything everything there's a balance isn't there yeah. you know and i guess if you just can't even run around the, the the park for 400 meters because you just aren't strong enough to do that then maybe you need to look at how you would strengthen yourself to do that but you know if you were you know it, it if you were going to do a couch, if you've never run in your life ever and you would thought, right, I'm going to run. Yeah. And I'm going to do a couch to 5K. The first day you get up and do your your run, you might run to the tree and back and you'd be absolutely wasted, tired, you know, nearly fit, nearly being sick, thinking, do you know what? This isn't for me. But you hang in there and you go to the tree and back twice the next day. And then you, 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 you know, you increase it, you increase it, you increase it. Well, you can do the same, the same just because you've got a good engine. It doesn't mean to say that you can't create specific strength in your body to run just by running a very short distance then a longer distance then a longer distance then a longer distance very often we injure ourselves because we get very excited and we just go out and do too much yeah yeah absolutely. I, I'm, me definitely you know i was doing that all the time <laughs> um so you know i i, I don't think i've come across too many i've worked with over three thousand runners one-to-one -one. i don't think i've come across too many runners that couldn't run 100 meters 
And if you can run 100 meters today, you can run 150 tomorrow and you can build it and you can build it and you can build it. So maybe that, in my mind, that's a really good way to build strength. Definitely. So uh, now, now a little bit on to yourself. Do you, do you still run? I know you, you do spend a lot of time researching, writing. I've, that's one thing I've always wondered and never actually asked about <laughs> do, you, do you actually still run and you know yeah but, yeah I go do. for it I, yeah no I, I do I do when I, I mean when I travel I definitely run because it's a great way you know I mean one of the great things about running is uh, you just need to take a pair of trainers so wherever yeah. I go and often I'm working with runners so it's quite nice to be able to kind of just go out with a little bit of most of, a lot of them I couldn't get anywhere near and certainly in Africa <laughs> I had to chase them on a motorbike I can't actually you know stay, keep up with them at all um, but yeah, I mean, I'm in the, I'm at the stage in my life, probably the, the best stage you could possibly be where I just run for fun. I run, you know, I get up, I might do 10K um, and, you know, it's a, an hour of running really easy, really relaxed in the environment that I like. Um, and I'm probably enjoying my running more now uh, than I ever have, to be honest with you. When, and I don't race or anything like that. But can you imagine me doing a race? I mean, you, I'd be so proud of it about my form. You imagine, <laughs> you imagine doing a hundred miler. You'd have to constantly be thinking about good form. Because You'd have a target, target all <laughs> over you. Yeah, on, Shane, exactly. head up. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, I do, and I and I and I probably love it more now than I ever have. And certainly, anybody listening, you know, that's the best reason to run. You know, PBs, and you know qualifying for age group or, or whatever it might be they're all really good targets and they're good things to do but you'll actually be better at all of that if you actually remember to enjoy the running I think it's super important yeah and I've learned that from someone who someone else who's, who's referenced in your book and who um hopefully is coming on as a guest uh in a few weeks time Bex Ferry um, uh, right yeah okay yeah so she's she's been a client of mine before she's not a right. kind of world-renowned runner but she is a very, very exceptionally talented runner. But she also has this amazing ability to do all these running challenges for fun. You know, she yes. genu- genuinely loves it and it gives yes. gives her so much, which is which is fantastic and it's so good to see. And it's also really great to hear that you, you're still running and that you're actually enjoying it probably like you say the best you've ever enjoyed it before which is which is brilliant because you know I imagine for you this year has been pretty tough you have all your yeah everything taken away the travel etc and lockdown but again having that ability to to practice what you preach and then really love it and thrive is great to hear yeah absolutely and you know it, it, it has been a, it's been a tough year for everybody I think and none of us would have chosen it I'm sure but it has been a good opportunity to kind of press that reset button a little bit um and um yeah just sit back and kind of catch up and I think for the March to March before we before we locked down I think I was away 22 weeks of the year researching and coaching and traveling and doing stuff which is a fan listen don't get me wrong I'm not complaining it's amazing um but it's been really quite nice to just to dial back and yeah, just get out and do some running and uh, yeah, to work on some projects, working on the second book and stuff. So there's a, and hopefully a lot of people will, will get some positives from this and you know maybe and maybe just come out being a bit kinder to each other because hopefully we'll just we'll appreciate what we had. Know, this time last year we didn't even know did we we you know we would have taken it for granted that you and I could just catch up uh and do a session and you know it wouldn't have it wouldn't and then I might just go to the airport and uh, go to Mongolia it wouldn't it wouldn't have struck me as odd whereas now um it would be amazing absolutely 
So I'm sure there's people listening to, to the pod that would love to find out a little bit more about how they can better themselves in terms of their running and their movement. And, um, I mentioned at the beginning, you, you, you know, you've got the, you're the founder of Running Reborn. Can you tell the listeners a little bit more about that, how they can access it, what what sort of resources are available, how they can start to help themselves and also how they can contact you for potential one-to-one coaching? Uh, yeah, so yeah, so Running Reborn, you know, that is me. It's uh, my company, so it's, it's running coaching. That takes various forms, uh, one-to-one kind of face-to-face coaching. Um, and I also do video uh, analysis, remote online video analysis and coaching as well. I work with groups. Um, I think the book is so that you, you can find all of that at uh, runningreborn.com. Um, and obviously the book would be a good, uh, a good way of understanding the work as well. But what I'm really, really passionate about doing, and I think we were, we were chatting about this earlier before we came on, I, you know, of all of the analysis that I do, and I use some pretty, pretty expensive equipment for analysis and, uh, and research and coaching, but the most powerful piece of uh, equipment I use when I'm uh, researching, coaching, or analyzing is video. Okay, uh, and because it's incredibly powerful to understand and see the way that you move. So what I'm working on is really now is a is a project where I'm really trying to inspire people to just get out and video each other, buddy up the power of the group thing that we were talking about earlier. Go out, video each other, start to see each other move. And then the the Running Reborn coaching site, that has lots of downloadable videos on good form and explanations behind it. So you can go out, video yourself running with a buddy, look at how you run, look at the videos to see if you're doing it well or not. And then you understand what you can kind of go out then and work on um, and re-video yourself and kind of go through that that thing. That's the thing that makes it a very, very cheap way of actually taking ownership of your movement yourself and to a large degree joining up with people and, and helping to coach each other because I, I think that's what coaching should be is just actually passing on information empowering the athlete isn't it if, if we were working together that's what we'd be doing and when I'm if I'm coaching you you know I'm learning as much from you as I'm as I'm passing on to you so that's how it should be so I'm really keen because not everybody can get to me so um, you know if you can't get to me or you can't do an online one-to-one then the coaching site will allow you to start to understand how to move and, and essentially join up with people and be your own coaches. Definitely. Well, look, um, I'm a I'm a member of the Running Reborn community. I've I've paid my paid my fee, and there's so much useful information there and resources that you really can mm-hmm. start to help yourself. Particularly at the moment, there's a lot of people who are just getting to going with running. There's so many little videos, tips yourself. You speak on a lot of the videos about how we can help ourselves and create this beautiful movement. But also the book, The Lost Art of Running. For those people that know me personally, I don't really read books very often because attention span issues, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. <laughs> but this book is written in a way that I really resonated with because it's it's just it's 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 simply it's simple information that comes across through stories and adventure that really paint this beautiful picture of elasticity and natural movement and I don't know anybody who will read that book and come away without becoming a better version of themselves in terms of how they think about their movement 
you know obviously as with everything it takes a certain amount of application to make changes but mm. I think the book itself just is that facilitator to make those changes and if you team that up with the videos etc or if you want to get in touch with Shane I can hand on heart from experience say it will make a huge difference to how you move you know whether you're a competitive person or whether you just need to get running for your own well-being it's, it's worth investing the time the time and the money in um but Shane we're gonna to have to wrap up now because um we've been talking about today but um yeah it, what an amazing what an amazing conversation thank you so much for giving up your time i know you're incredibly busy um i really appreciate it and i'll obviously see you in a week or so for a, for a face-to-face uh, session which i'm really looking forward to because i've got a few big goals that i'll share with you when i see you um but thank you so much for coming on board really appreciate it Listen, absolute pleasure. It really was. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll do it again. We'll catch up in uh, a little while and we can see how the research is going and, and see if we've learned anything new. Definitely. Well, look, look after yourself and I'll see you soon. All right. Take care. Cheers, Shane. Bye. Cheers.